Hello, my dear friends. Welcome to this latest episode of Love Service Wisdom with myself, Rada Wepner. In this episode, I'm in conversation with my sweetheart, East Forest, as he shares all about the process of creating his album possible, what his inspiration was, what went into the music, lots of behind-the-scenes details of his process, and uh, the lyrics of some of the songs. So it's a pretty fun, engaging conversation that he and I had a few weeks ago. And I just got to say, I'm so proud of him in this album. He started working on it right a mm, couple months maybe into the pandemic, and it was a really big project of his throughout the whole past year. And I know it was really healing for himself, but even me as a like side side support, side participant witness for it, um, the music has given me a lot of healing. And I just read a great review from Treble Zine too about the album that I'm going to share with you guys. Treblezine.com. And it's a review by Jeff Tarek. And he says, to highlight specific songs almost feels beside the point with an album like possible. Each piece connected to the one that follows and the one that precedes it. But unlike Brian Eno's definition of ambient, as ignorable as it is enjoyable, this isn't music that easily fades into the background. It doesn't impose but it's also too delicately gorgeous and emotionally evocative to become wallpaper. It's deeply moving music that makes no demands, just offers some beautiful company. So I hope you spend some time with Possible as company of yours. You can find it on all the streaming platforms out there. And of course, you can learn more at eastforest.org. And... Yeah, you're really going to you're going if you're going to love the album if you haven't heard it yet and I think that you'll really enjoy this conversation. Thanks to your support of the podcast for giving it a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and sharing it with your friends. It really helps with the growth of the podcast and its sustainability. Thanks of course to East Forest as always for his help making this podcast not sound schmutzy as we say and creating good audio quality for your listening experience. Love you guys. Hope you have a great week. And here's this conversation with East Forest. East Forest, you are just about to release one of your first studio albums in quite a while. Possible. Yeah, technically, it's the first studio album since the Ram Dass album because music for Mushrooms is technically from live recordings. And then we had the Reworks album, which is like, you know, what's the way to put that? Like, it's other people's work that I was more a producer on. The Reworks album was Ram Dass tracks that other musicians remixed? Yeah, we are just calling them reworks, but exactly. So the reworks album came out at the very, very end of 2019. Mm -hmm. No, 2020? 2019. Gosh, 2019. Wow. And then I released some some meditations. So I had some, you know, meditation for chaotic times and the still album and uh, some collaborations, the Vigil for Black Lives Lost, some singles, basically. Yeah. So tell us about your inspiration to do a full studio album again. Well, part of it is just like, that's what you do. And so it's sort of like, I'm always in the mindset, like right now, even though um, I've wrapped up, at least from my point of view, you know, the production of Possible was done quite a while ago, and now it's it just came out. And so you get into these cycles of kind of dreaming and letting something emerge, and then you're in the process of it is emerging, which is a very long process. Mm. And then you sort of at some point shift into this like, oh, I kind of see what's emerging, and you're sort of in a semi-mixing recording zone and filling in blanks. And then when it's all done, now you're in this process of like the mastering and the artwork and what do we do with it? Well, I I kind of want you to explain for maybe those that don't even know what the phrase studio album means. <laughs> Sure. What that is. 
I just, the way I differentiate it, I guess, is that if something's in the studio, quote unquote, versus live, the big difference for me is when I'm playing a, a live, let's say, ceremony concert, it's, I mean, we're in this space of that ceremony, there might be some medicine involved, and it's totally improvised, and it's sort of just like birthed in the moment, and then that's it. And so you're I've, recording as you're performing. Right. Yeah, and then that becomes an album, and that happened many times in the past with other albums, right? Music for Mushrooms, the, yeah, or... Um, several other albums like crystal starship music to die to music to be born to prana, prana uh so albums like that yeah and so a lot in your catalog and and those are typically you know so afterwards you have this mindset of you're sort of like an editor or mastering or it's not a whole lot you can do in the mixing level so you have this it's weird it's sort of like okay that exists and i can only manipulate it in so many ways but you're just sort of tweaking it in small ways to create a a a release. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what's interesting too, probably prior to Music for Mushrooms with that title and the explicit statement that it makes, most listeners probably assumed that those other albums that you just listed were studio albums and they didn't know that they were yeah. live albums. I would imagine the, you know, the average listener is not thinking differently about any of them in that sense. And I actually wouldn't expect them to, and they don't need to. But I, I, for myself, like if someone's using East Forest music to guide a journey, there's no rules about that. But I would, I had, I didn't design, for instance, like the Ramdas album or even the Possible album to to guide a journey, like from start to finish, or like all of this is really what I would think is ideal mm -hmm. for a medicine journey. That being said, you, I would imagine you certainly could use songs, and for some people that might work really well in particular moments, just like the song I Am Loving Awareness at the right moment in a journey can be great. So if it's curated in that way, if you're building a playlist, and I would imagine with the Possible album, there are certain tracks in there. Um, there's a track called What Is near the end that's quite ambient, and we could talk about what that track means. We'll talk a, about it. Yeah, but... My point is that whatever works for you. And to answer your original question about what makes a studio record different, yeah. to me, it's a bit more like intentional and you can manipulate way, way more. So it, the thought process, instead of it being one moment in time, like I'm recording and improvising live, it's, it's some songs might start that way. Actually, I would say all the songs do, but in the studio, so there's no one listening, there's no audience. And then after that, I kind of put on this other hat where you think, what does this song want? And the golden rule for me is serving the song. So that may mean some songs like Knocked on Wood or Mend, they stayed piano songs because I just really felt clearly it doesn't want or need anything else. It does, it's good. It, it, that's where it needs to be. Whereas songs like Possible started as just a piano song. And I just kept hearing like it wanted to have a lyric. It wanted to have a bass line. It wanted to have strings. So you're adding those elements in the studio later, and then you have all this ability, because each one of those is a separate addition, separate track, essentially, like a separate, separate mm -hmm. layer. You can mix those and adjust them and cut things out and move things. So it becomes a more like thoughtful process, like cooking over weeks or months as opposed to just one night. Yeah, and I know that I witnessed for you particularly going deep with the strings and you called on your friend Lorna Dune to help you with some arrangements. Yeah. And I, then I, you recorded in studio with a number of different sets of string yeah, it players. Was hard. It's hard. Like I think these days with the ability to do a lot of stuff through MIDI and electronically, it's like not real instruments. Mm -hmm. I made a real commitment to wanting to use real instruments. Uh, and I like that because of the limitations. I like the imperfections. And I, above all, I like the sound Do of it. Do you really like the imperfections? I, yeah, I love it. Because I've heard it. you get quite upset about some imperfections. Yeah, but I'm saying I like the textural elements of like you can hear the mechanics of the piano or you can hear the okay. creak of a stool. Okay. You hear, uh, it adds, it's alive. With talking about string players, do you like the imperfections? Well, on the other side of it, like I like, I don't like things that like, the intonation is off to the point where it's not musical anymore. Like then it's distracting. It's taking you away from, you know, the, 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 the vibe. 
And so I did want to do a lot of things with strings on this record because I love strings and I love the expressiveness of those instruments and the way that they're fretless in a sense. So like a human voice, the way the player plays it, like the, you know, the, the pitch in a sense is infinite. You know, it's like an A for them is really where they decide to do it and their ear says that's that's now in harmonizing with the other players or with the music, just like a singer would do the same. Mm -hmm. Whereas an A on a piano, it is what it is. You hit the note, it represents to how the person tuned it in that moment, right? So it's, I can't change that as I'm playing the piano. And that brings like this level of humanness and the player themselves is bringing like their own intonation and abilities into the song. And that to me is really amazing, but it's also really difficult because these are difficult instruments to play and everyone has a different way of doing it. And typically with the kind of budgets we're working with, we're doing things quickly. It's not like we have rehearsal for a week and then record it. We're typically like, I send them the music in advance and they might or may not look it over much. And then we're just playing it and trying to get it done in one or two sessions, mm -hmm. usually. Um, so... The strings was a big challenge, but also uh, I worked with Lorna, Lorna Doom, because uh, she's done some remixes before on the Held Kindred, and she did some string arrangements for um, on the Karen album for, what's that last song called? Hearts uh, Are One. Hearts Are One. She did the string arrangements for that. Yeah. And she's awesome, and she's she brilliant. Is. And she so is. I really knew as like, if, if Lorna's into this, I essentially would like write string parts. I'd start it and then I'd say, here's where I'm starting. Here's where I'm, I got, what do you think? And she would essentially take her pass at it to make them better. <laughs> and then we would together tweak that and then I, I recorded them. And we could talk about how we were, because they weren't all recorded with the same people in the same way in the same places even. But um, it definitely turned out because of the strings and the piano and some of the bass guitar, like it's got this contemporary classical underpinnings and grounding, mm -hmm. um, but then it has some other elements, but it wasn't really like going as far in an electronic direction as some of my previous works. And I think that's just also where I was at throughout the last year and a half, two years making this. What got you into that place? I mean, it wasn't, It that's that's an interesting question because I think if I look back on the year and what this album ended up being about, this idea of possible and this in me feeling like as things are transitioning and changing, what what is possible for myself, for the world? And I think I was exploring that that feeling, that energy musically. And so it's, musically and emotionally, I hear it's it's kind of a liminal space of it's hopeful, but it's there's a there's a tep, like an unknowing there. And that's been a huge feeling for me in the last while through the pandemic is just not knowing mm -hmm. and feeling the uncomfortableness of that. And there's a yearning for wanting to know, but then stepping back and saying, it's okay not to know. And do I ever really know where things are going or what's going to emerge? But feeling too that something is emerging and there's a, a tenderness in that. Like there's there's a like this germination of something very new and i think I, I was reflected a bit in some of the music that has sort of that the softness of the piano or the strings there it's not as hard-edged musically in that not that i'm usually that yeah. hard-edged but you know you think about songs like soul land or um it's still chill but i mean it's got the sharp arpeggiation of synthesizers or uh um i didn't want to i wasn't feeling myself going that direction it's yeah sort of i don't softness. think any of these tracks really have beats just can't fall out of sense. love has a little bit of beats um and things like could mm. has a similar i noticed those beats are very similar and i almost was like well can't put those two next to each other on the album <laughs> <laughs> i liked i was just where i was going you know sort of a delay on the, the snare well i i liked hearing you speak about your inspiration for the album with you know the title is possible and you have that little campaign around what is possible. 
And this idea that I've heard you speak to of like, we're burning the fields through the pandemic for a new life to be born. And now we are going to have the opportunity to really choose what seeds we plant. So I want to know what you think is possible. Yeah, and there's two levels to that. I think it's what's possible for myself and then my collective dream. And it really feels like it's a dream. And part of what I've noticed for myself, I don't know how this feels for you, but part of dreaming what's possible, it's like I find myself wanting to rush through it in a way. Rush through the dreaming? Yeah, like I want to know. Like I want to say, where's the seed? I want to plant it. Yeah, and, I don't, my brain doesn't work that way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I keep feeling like this is a longer, more drawn out, uh, slower growth where I really still don't know fully uh, what the tree is that's emerging. Uh, but I, I know like the constituent parts of what I'm dreaming. And at times it's confusing because... It's not as simple as like, oh, I want a, a you know a future where you know we no longer have polarization and division, and uh, we're we have more we're to more to feel more time rich, and but at the same time there's more abundance, and and it's actually been more like an acceptance of what is, but me feeling more at ease with the contradictions. Mm, that's and, wonderful. That's what feels like is emerging. It's more of like this uh, less polarized in my mind, even with mm. ideas and expectations. It's more like, like, remember we were talking the other day about success or even time being on a spiral. Mm-hmm. And if you think about a slinky that is pulled out, and that is a representation of us literally moving through space and time around the sun, around the galaxy. But also if you look at... Uh, say, success or achievement on that same visual representation, you're always at different points on this uh, spiral. So if two-dimensionally, it looks like one is wider and one is smaller, but really in a three-dimensional uh, sense, it's all relative. You're just at different points on this thing. So in that thinking, your success or your achievement, it's always just relative to where you are. There's always a more, there's always a less. And it helps me to understand... Uh, kind of everything I'm, I'm doing or I'm yearning for on, on all levels, the things I yearn for, there's, it's always relative. Well, what I'm hearing from you is this newer mindset of recognizing that you can hold paradox and contradiction and not personally get as um, dogmatic externally and internally as maybe you did before. And because of that, you're able to hold multiple truths at once, which does create a larger field of possibility. <laughs> at best. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, a lot of this too is like a process of dreaming and stumbling and dreaming and stumbling. And that's the, maybe like the the, the newness being born is my com- increasing compassion for that process of the humanness of it. Mm-hmm. And, and, I just, I think I'm just trying to loosen that grip on all of it and try to love a bit more, as more and more and more through the process itself of recognizing that there's always this virgin newness in front of us of what's possible. And at the same time, you can, we're walking through a space that feels at times oppressive or scary or overwhelming. That's a big thing I've been feeling since the pandemic started is, is feelings at times of overwhelm. What's the overwhelm related to? Well, some of it, you know, initially was just very practical about this this feelings of collapse around us Mm -hmm. and a lot of that fear. Um, I think I'm guessing we all touched on that in different ways. And then some of it was so much change has been going on for myself uh, individually and then collectively as a planet that I think it's overwhelming at times to to sense like, man, so much is shifting and changing so fast. And at the same time, so much is going on in my life. It can be difficult at times to thread that needle, especially when you're kind of like the, I I don't have, 
I mean, I have so many wonderful people supporting me, such as yourself and 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 people working together on the project. Mm-hmm. But I also am all, I'm like at the captain of that ship in a way that there are times where I don't want to be a captain. Yeah. <laughs> so is it overwhelm of like, can I even keep up with all of this change and all that's being asked of me right now? Sure. Yeah, you got it. Sure. Um, so in that way, like oftentimes when I'm playing music in the in the moment where the, the, the first moment of when that music is coming out, it's me trying to assuage parts of my own fear. It's a, it's like a higher part of myself talking to the scared child part of it's myself. It's like a lullaby. In a way, in a way. And so this whole record is really, I think that's why it has that feeling of, of gentle support through that hopefulness. I'm, I'm always trying to find the language for it, but I feel, I feel that listening now back to the, to the music. Uh, it's, and I, I think that's yeah, that's a like theme it, in my music for all of East Forest music. It's always singing to myself a kind of support and hopefulness. But it's not like saccharine. I don't want it to be. I want it to be like there's a there's a depth of like knowing like the somberness and the grief. That's part of it too. That's an important part of like moving forward. Yes. Yeah. Well, I see and hear within it this ability to be in like the yin yang space, the both and space. And when you were talking earlier, you know, just about even like getting rid of polarization, you know, like that idea, taking it by itself. I mean, we often have ideas (laughs) we have throughout human history of like, if we can get rid of this one bad thing, like mosquitoes, for example. Right, right. And then the damage that causes to the rest of the natural world, trying to eliminate something that you thought was like a foe, but actually it was keeping other things at bay. And so even the idea of like, we could get rid of polarization is like- There'd be no life. (laughs) There'd be no karma. Because tension, tension and release, karma, the ups and the downs and the waves is what creates this physical- conscious reality that's one of the reasons why the artwork of the album we went with the Euroboros that was illustrated by Evan Lawrenson but I told him like hey this is the image I'm looking for because it feels like that image was coming up a lot for us about a year ago when we were getting that uh, artwork created and it has to do with that idea of the cycle of life of reincarnation of incarnation uh, of the yin yang, that engine of it's feeding itself mm-hmm. through its own destruction, it's being born. That's right, the, the beauty, Boris. the sacred, and the profane. The snake eating its tail yeah. is the image. That's the album cover image. Right, and there's something. There's, you know, to me, there is a connection between that meaning of that symbol and the word possible, and the idea of what's possible. Like the possibility. There's a paradox in that. The possibility is coming through this inevitable destruction in a way or like composting to create newness well that's over your and image over and over of again. the fields being burned as well so in that sense this is helping me like discover you know or, or language like what it's about because musically what i like is you don't always have to like nail it down with words you can just explore it musically and emotionally mm-hmm. but it has to do with through that composting, it, it has to go through that process for something new to come out. Yes. And it would but and then that needs to be composted. Yes. And so it's maybe that's why there's this recognition for myself that there's no I'm not at a destination or I don't know what that quote unquote seed is because it's always transforming. It's yes. always being continually eaten and grown again. And maybe that's what the acceptance is. It's like the struggle or the process needs to continue. Yes. And that's sometimes like, well, fuck that. You know, it's like, but also there's a part of me now that's also saying like, that's, that's right. That's okay. And that's, Mm -hmm. there's a, that's a knowing in that. Mm -hmm. The deeper wisdom and truth. You're reminding me of a conversation that I just had with our dear friend, Dave Holiday, who's been on the podcast, who's a guy down in Boulder, Utah, that we were just with during the yoga retreat I was leading down there. And he was telling me about an exercise that's essentially done where someone is sharing something hard from their life that they've overcome, that they've already worked through. 
not something that's going on that's hard in their life that they're still struggling with. And in that way, what, like if I were to say, this is something really hard in my life that happened in the past that I've already worked through, that's, he called it like old shit. Old shit is fertilizer. And out of fertilizer, old shit, flowers bloom. But new shit, shit that's happening now is actually something that still stinks a bit. That because... no, it still stinks and it causes damage and it's not good for you. The new shit isn't good for you in the present moment. So you have to like it's let break it down. It's got to break down. Yeah. But then once it does, it becomes that which life comes out of. That's great. Yeah, that's wonderful. Mm. Yeah, the new shit's still stinky. <laughs> <laughs> Get the new shit away from me. But you know, it's doing its job. So it's like, give it time. It just yeah, needs time. Exactly. To, give it time. To break down. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. fertilizing the ground, even though it's so, mm-hmm. sometimes you step in it. Oh, what know? was my, oh, my shit emoji that came out of my last journey too. Oh, yeah. We had a journey together a few weeks ago and he, Krishna asked me on the other side of it, like, how was that for you? I'm like, basically it was the shit emoji. Where but it's in like, a good way. Well, the yeah. shit emoji smiling. It's like a pile of poop that has a <laughs> smiley face. And in it, it was the, for me personally, this experience of like, one, the recognition of just like, can we all just name like how good it feels to have a good shit? <laughs> like everyone loves that experience, <laughs> right? Release. It's, it's kind of, yeah. It's a release. It's like an orgasmic experience. Again, the tension and release, the clarifying yeah. or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And every, if, you, if you're not having good shits, you really, really want them. But it's something that culturally and psychically we think of as vile and bad on the outer surface and communicating about it. But internally, actually, we like it and it's good for us and we need it. Yeah, so the that emoji, the poop emoji is like, that just sums it up. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> Smiling pile of poop. Yeah, exactly. Well, I don't know. We So I could... I, I wanted to use this opportunity to kind of dive into a celebration of this record, but I'm just, as we're talking about it, I'm just recognizing how long it's been and how it represents these sort of macro things, but then there's the micro level of like how it was made or who worked on it or uh, I don't know what other angles we want to hit next. Well, there's so much, sweetheart. I mean... I don't want to be too much in the weeds, but I know sometimes it's interesting... When I, I like to learn from other people sometimes about some of the hows because it's the process. Well, one question I had for you that I thought our listeners might be curious about is your choice of voiceovers, you know? Yours, oh, the spoken word, yeah. The spoken word. You're speaking on Can't Fall Out of Love, but you also have Lorraine. Lorraine Weiss and, and Bio, Bio. Yeah. And so just I want to hear about your choice of selection for them. Well... As this, you know, technically is the follow-up to the Ramdas album, I, you know, maybe the logical thing would have been like, okay, we need the Dalai Lama, or you know, who we need Thich another Nhat great Han. spiritual teacher. Yeah, like go like, and for some reason, I, that did cross my mind. But I also, it hit me one day that I, I have the podcast. Here we are on the podcast, and there's all these recordings. It's like I've never thought about sampling the podcast. And kind of repurposing it in different ways. And there's some amazing people on this podcast that have said some amazing things. And I just started uh, thinking about which ones I had that were at least pretty decent recordings on their end. Mm -hmm. And there are people like Lorraine. We were in in the studio in Boulder, Utah. And we had just finished recording for the Ramdas album, Hurt, because she played on saxophone on a few tracks. And I was like, let's do a podcast before dinner. And she was really resistant. I think, you know, like, I don't want to feature myself like that. It's like, yeah, no, 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 she's very me. humble. Very private. Mm. And we were lucky to have have that. It's a great podcast, one of the early ones. Definitely check it out if you haven't. Lorraine Weiss. But it was a great audio quality, too, because yes. we were in a studio on these great mics. And Bio was in India. But you had a mic, you know, but it was through the filter of the whole podcast system. But it was pretty good. But what he said was one of my favorite podcasts so it's just beautiful poetry and metaphor so i just as a lot of sometimes weird ideas come in my mind i always think like well let's just try it and Mm. so once i just started playing with it i found it it felt really beautiful and so there was i didn't it's like the ideas are more important to me than like 
the celebrity of it. And they're both amazing people, but it's just as far as saying like, I want to, I want to feature these ideas. Yeah. And they felt very timely to everything we've been talking about, the themes and the process of this thematically of the record itself. I love too that they're, in my mind, elders, you know, that you just kind well, of picked too. everyday elders and, and highlighting the wisdom of the ordinary, not that they're ordinary. The rain doesn't even have a website. Yes. Which is like, kind of like breaks the matrix in a way because you go to like tag people or these sorts of things in in systems like Spotify's and it doesn't work. It's just like, it's just a person's <laughs> name and you Google her and she's she's not easy to find, which is beautiful. Yes. It's also Dave Holiday, similar. Um, yeah. And Bio is an author and uh as a bit more of a presence, uh, but nonetheless, um, yeah, and, and I have a recording of myself, and that was only because I've, I've spoken about this on the podcast before, but it was just a very unique situation where I had this a year ago, a very powerful ketamine Almost experience with ago, you. Almost a year ago, exactly. <laughs> yeah. In your therapy A year ago setting. in two days. <laughs> yeah, and it it blew me open so wide, and you encouraged me to that night, like maybe just like, take some notes essentially yeah to record you were needing to integrate and process so Which, i suggested talking to yourself i did the same thing 10 or so years before with uh, that became grandmother's fear mm-hmm. when i was taking audio notes after my very first ayahuasca uh ceremony so i don't know i was just taking notes to myself and uh, again later on i revisited that and i thought oh you know what there are, there is sort of an interesting story in here that is, uh, I think, also relevant and universal, but just enough openness and metaphor in it that it's not too specific for people. Like, it's specific for me, but I, I like things not to be too on the nose because that's what music's so great about. Like, it, it, it's open to your interpretation to unlock what it needs to unlock for you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that song is incredibly deep and powerful and beautiful and I know for you it holds a lot of personal significance and like you said you have talked about it on other podcasts before but just to touch on it briefly together now you know you were having a a ketamine journey and a group experience that I was leading and you had received a dose that put you um, into it took me uh, off guard, to say the least. It I took mean, you off guard. There is a shot, which is intermuscular, they call it, which apparently, as I was told, it would hit you like a freight train, quote unquote. And I'm like, no big deal. I've been yeah, around like, the block. Exactly. A little um, I just cavalier. wasn't. I, well, I didn't understand the potentiality of the medicine uh, is an understatement. But and And the guy who administered it was very also cavalier and sort of not the greatest bedside manner at all so when it when it came on for you it was a surprise and we were in a group (laughs) setting and i was leading a group (laughs) and i could see you across the room from me kind of rattled convulsing yeah Yeah, like literally shaking and i thought to myself oh boy okay all right okay he's going really deep but i don't know because i'm obviously not in your head and it went on you were maybe in that space for probably like 10-ish minutes, maybe. More, like 45. Well, total. But I was going to say at like the 10-ish minute mark, I did something that I hadn't done in the group setting before because it was in the middle of COVID and everybody's spaced and everybody's wearing masks and we're all distanced. But you're my partner and I could see you. I didn't know what was going on, but I could tell that it was intense. And so what I hadn't done before was leave my spot and physically interact with anyone in the group setting in the COVID environment. So I got up and I just knelt down next to you. And all I did was take your hand and held your hand. Yeah. Which was profound because it lined up as these things do in the journey. I was, I had, I was having the deepest experience I've ever had on any psychedelic experience ever at that moment, which when you're not expecting even a deep journey, you're just having to accept levels of dimensional existence that, you know, I didn't know existed. And it's just like 
each one is blowing my mind. And each level that I was breaking through felt like there will be no turning back after this. In a sense, like death is, there's no turning back from death. It's like, I would sense a kind of barrier that I really didn't have a choice to cross through. It's like, but you're crossing through it, but it still involves a level of choice to cross through it. And by doing so, it felt like it was as big as there's now after and there was before kind of thing. And that was just, those were just so big deals. And that was just happening to me in the space. You okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, a little shake over there. I was like, did I just like drudge up? Do I need to burn some sage? <laughs> no, no, right. no, it's good. <laughs> I'm fine. And one of those moments, you know, when you go through those, it's there's this existential crisis or, or question that sometimes can come up in these journeys. I'm like, what is over that barrier or whatever that threshold is? And will I be held or is it just annihilation? Is it true? Is it is it the great beyond that I was I was mistaken from before and here we are again and now it's actually like obliteration, death, whatever. Or am I actually dying? And there was this you know, this is difficult to explain, but in that process there is a yearning and a grasping for myself to say, like, please hold me, or is there a God in a sense? And as I was crossing through one of these thresholds, one of the big ones, and just feeling like alone and lost and like, is there an other? Is there love? Is there God? I felt you touch my hand in that moment. And it, it not only did I feel safe and literally held in that moment, but it was a representation of yes. Like in essence, I was being answered through the divine of the feminine of you physically in that room as my partner, as the guy like literally holding my hand. It represented the lover and the mother and God and love all in one. And it was like this stunningly beautiful gift of sin. And I've felt this in different flavors on other experiences mm -hmm. where it's like 50.1% like, yes, we're held. Yes, inside the great ecosystem of light and dark of, and I don't want to call it good and evil, but just creation, the Euroboros, the snake eating the tail. It's just a little bit of, let's call it, uh, creation versus destruction to keep the movement mm. and in that in this and that's all inside the womb or the bubble or the o the water of the ocean that is love itself and that was where i had that feeling of you can't fall out of that love because you're you literally can't so knowing that all the processes we go through all these dimensional shifts all the problems all the it's all inside a thing that you can never truly be lost or get outside of that system because you are it and it is you. And that represented that to me and you holding my hand. And that was the phrase, you can't fall out of love, which I love that phrase because it has sort of a pop poetry to it of it. You know, it also just sort of means like on the more zooming back into 3d reality, like being in love. Right. But mm -hmm. then in the, total most macro reality you can never be outside of love you can never be outside of love so that ended up on that track and interestingly that the music of that was actually a b-side from the Ram Dass record and Lorraine is playing saxophone on that song too from that original session that we recorded her podcast on right afterwards so it's actually like one of these only songs on the record that was sort of a vestige of a previous session, mm -hmm. but I really had liked the music to it and I always wanted to find a home for it and it had been unreleased. And so I reworked it for this, uh, for this album, for the possible album. Wow. Beautiful. Beautiful. I can't wait to re-listen to that track. I like that track a lot. Um, I like the vibe of it and, it's just, it's an it's just an interesting like mashup of styles. Like I like that it has a little bit of a beat, but it's still kind of um, like pensive and I don't know. It's it's an in, it's in a cool in between zone of genres, mm -hmm. which happens to me a lot. It's like I don't know what genre this is. <laughs> <laughs> We've never been able to to create our own name or nail it down, but so be it. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and. We also just want to give a shout out, you know, these records, like we talked about Lorna Dune and we talked about uh, Bio and Lorraine, but there's, you know, other musical contributors that helped uh, 
really make the music what it is. Um, the the 208 ensemble from the part of the Boise Philharmonic uh, and Owen Hoffman Smith, who also played cello and bass guitar and double contrabass on the Ron Bus album. He came in and played more double bass. And uh, did we play cello on this record? I, I don't believe he did. And Thatcher Schmid, when we were, so we went to Portland and did some sessions there too. And there's a, that song, What Is? Mm-hmm. It's interesting because it's, it's, it's kind of the most experimental ambient song on the record. And uh, someone was asking me how it was made. And I was like, well, to be honest, like I had the, the piano was an improvisation I did in a studio in Utah on my upright. And it had that kind of ongoing repetitious synth thing going sort of in a weird time in the background. And that to me represents like what is. Hmm. And the piano is swimming around it, trying to like, it's with it, it's out of it. It's, and and to me, I love that f- conceptual feeling of it. it's kind of this representation of, uh, it used to be called against what is. I don't mean like pushing against, but it's like the friction of against what is. And I just had that. And when those guys were in the studio, I would just tell them, I was like, look, I want you to just, a few times through just riff to what you're hearing like improvise so they would just create all these lines and they're just flowing with it mm-hmm. and then owen went home thatcher came in he didn't hear owen's part but then he does the same and then i take all their parts and like a collage i take phrases and i start moving them around to create a conversation between the three of us or the four of us being the fourth party is what is wow and so it's just you hear it and you're like, oh, everyone's in the room riffing off each other. It's actually none of us ever heard each other. They only heard the piano, really. Yeah. And that was created by itself in in isolation. That's beautiful. What is, what is, what is possible? Yeah. So it's a conversation that was like, that's a great example of how studio records can be different. It's like, well, that can yeah. only be done in the studio in different locations at different times. And then it's like a mixing, editing process to put it together. You also had Sheila Bringy. I was just going to say, that was a similar thing. Well, she's such a boss and so insanely yeah, bow talented. Down, bow down to Sheila. And she played a Bansuri flute on Mind Karma on the Ramdas album. And so on this record, I wanted to feature her amazingness again. And so she's really easy to work with because I'll, I'll create a track, which I did for Sweetly Down, and just send it to her and... Uh, she gets a professional recording of her playing like all sorts of ideas and then usually I give her one note and then she does it again and it's perfect. I was like, I need it. Like I need you to just rip it a bit more or like, (laughs) you know, a little, you know, go bigger or something like that. And she'll just do lots and lots of riffs and ideas in a similar way. I'll then chop them up and pop them around uh, and, and create like a song out of it in that way. And it becomes a conversation it's a bit more like edited. Uh, so you get that you put on that sort of producer mixer hat. And and some songs didn't make it in, but I'm going to release them like um, Clinton. I love that track from Clinton. Patterson. Pe- Clinton Patterson. Patterson, yeah, who plays uh, trumpet, among other things. He's a talented producer. And, and we did a track where he plays trumpet. And the track's great. It just wasn't fitting into the flow of, of this release. So I'm, I'm hoping to release some of those B-sides next year. Sweet. Well, <sighs> anything else about the album? Well, <sighs> you know, I feel like there's always like this unrequitedness. You know, you release a record and it's like this crazy long process. Um, and it goes in those phases we talked about of sort of like dreaming and creation and then sort of massaging the sculpture. And then, then you're in this like, I guess, promotional, like, talking it like this yeah. but it's like well they're all such different feelings and when you're in this state usually you're already thinking about like well what is going to come next like what's possible next what's the next possible for me hmm. i don't know but i feel it i feel that germination always you know that, that cycle of life that's been happening for 20 years as i've been making records as an artist is you know i would my question is, when you're making the album, you're really with it. 
you know, and engage with it. And it's very important and very consuming. And then when you're done with it and that you're at this phase of the promoting it and marketing it, like you said, does it already feel like it's behind you? Yeah. And it, to be honest, it's, it's, I guess when I said it's unrequited, like it's a difficult feeling and not, it's a difficult feeling to be in the talking of like promoting it phase because on one level you feel like you've birthed the baby mm-hmm. and it's not like a human life. It's like, and I've, you set it out to see and it has its life. Like all the records and all the music has that process. And once you do that, it no longer really feels mine anymore. But you're supposed to, like, you're so busy, like, trying to talk about it to just help let people know about it. But there's a part of me that's like, well, it's, it's, it's alive. It's on its own. It has to do its thing now. And sometimes you have to step it up as a parent and be like, <laughs> all right, I guess they want to come home for the weekend or I need to pay for college now. And, like, it needs a little help. <laughs> but I'm like, we got to, we're pregnant over here. We got another baby on the way. And, like, uh-huh. but they're still your children. Uh, but you feel like, you know, you're proud of your children, but you're also like, they're their own people in a way. They're their own beings. And it's what comes through any artist, all artists, when you create things. It's it's what we all are. It's not so much mine. I'm proud of like the labor I put in, but the fruits, what it is, it's as much all of us as it is me. And so I don't like to become deluded. I think that's why some artists are reticent to talk or listen to old work. It's sort of like, I don't want to identify too much with the gift of what came through. Also, I don't want to like cut myself off from the newness that's happening now for whatever's next. Um, but that's part of the nature of the beast of, I guess, promoting for better or worse. It's I try to look at it not so much as like this craven, I'm trying to sell something, but rather I'm trying to gift something. And mm-hmm. I need to do my service to, to, to support it. You have to let people know. You have to let people do this. That's, we have to that's do this. The thing. <laughs> well, you've made a lot of videos for it. A lot of videos. Yeah. More so than I think any More other More than I've album. ever done ever. And that's became out of the circumstance of, uh, working with some new partnerships. Uh, one RPM is the distributor and they've been, they were just like, this is part of how we work. And I, at first I was like, there's no way I can do all that. But then I thought, you know, this is a good excuse for me to kick in the pants to like try to create some visual content. And so uh, my buddy, Mark Ruchowski, who's a longtime friend in New York City, uh, he's he serendipitously has been getting really into video creation and making all sorts of video stuff and really getting very skilled very quickly and very talented and very driven. And he's a dear friend. So he used it as this win-win situation. He'd be like, well, look, I, I need content. You want to make content. Um, let's team up. I think he's made at least four videos. And Stephen Camo made the first one for Possible. Mm-hmm. Similar situation. He was like getting into this. And both of them, when I say getting into it, these guys are both such bosses that like, you know, they're they're like pro out of the gate. You know, they go big. And so we did the Possible uh, right here in the studio in Boise, shot it here. And uh, I think your daughter was the bass player for a hot minute in that video. She was the Literally stand-in. a hot two seconds. She was holding a bass. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, Mark, uh, Mark Tom photography is his, if you want him to work for you. Mark Kuchowski. That's Mark Tom. Yeah. That's how you find him. Mark Tom. That's his middle name. Well, I know that you're just getting back into playing live do you see yourself playing these tracks live because i don't think i've heard you play these tracks live yet i know you've only I, played I a couple times yeah i've been rehearsing them in different ways and that's a lot that's been a process um yeah it's tricky because in a similar way of i talked about when a song is born you ask how do i serve the song it's like the golden rule i try to do that live too and they're wildly different I tried to work up the song Possible the other day. Ideally, all of these would work really well with a live string section, a bass player. Like as they were recorded, I think they would sound the best. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, for better or worse, you have to use uh, certain tracks. Like with the Ram Dass song, I have to use Ram Dass as recorded, right? I'm triggering that. But songs like Ten Laws, I can build that up with my looping system. So it's quite truly live and organic. Anyway, it's, it's a spectrum. Yeah. 
And when I was trying to figure out like for possible, I was like, how do I play this live? And at first I just did all these different tracks and it was just sounded congested and like not alive. I'm like, I, this just doesn't feel right. And eventually it kept stripping things away and stripping things away. And currently, I don't know if this is where it will go. It's only working for me if I play it solo on the piano and just sing it. And so it's really like acoustic mm. and bare, and I dropped it a half step down, which hmm. so I can sing it better, <laughs> which is like, so I had to change the key and basically reinvent it as like a acoustic thing. And then it found like, oh, now the heart of it is coming through. It doesn't even make any sense, you know, but that's, that's how that worked. And I would like to do some of the other tracks that way, but um, it, I'm still in the process of trying to figure out like how it's going to work. And I've been, I've been working on it as a short answer. Well, I imagine once you figure that out, it's going to be quite beautiful. You know me, I've always wanted to have an ensemble, but um, every gig is different and they're so varied that like, I haven't had the luxury yet of like, okay, we're just going to do 30 dates and they're all the same and they're all with the, it's like, you know, one's more meditative than one's, you know, it's, yeah, so I I have to be quite flexible, which is is a challenge. Well, you're still, for the most part, a one man show. Yeah, and I've also been thinking about like not like maybe there's or I know there are advantages to that. It's just not just a limitation. I think I used to look at it as a limitation, and now I'm like actually, it's a choice for you too, very conscious. And there are many. One of the big advantages of that is you have total flexibility in the moment as one player to go in all these different directions, and it's not about like you know a string player's. Do I have to write sheet music to, for these changes? It sort of locks you in. Or how do you keep that flexibility when you have mo- lots of people on stage? Um, and so there, there is something really special about one person. The kind of openness that you have and the flow with it is truly infinite. And that is pretty, that's pretty cool to, to have that on stage. And we did that concert for your retreat. Mm-hmm where I was leaning into that really heavily. And that was a revelation for me of like how far that can go. And I, I don't know if we want to go in that too deeply, but. Talk about it. Yeah. Basically we did a concert for your retreat. That was just uh, in our friend's house where uh, Ron, Ron Johnson, who is a friend and longtime supporter. um, He's the one who built the studio down uh in Southern Utah that uh, I use a lot. And when we were building it, we were wanting to get a piano, like a nice instrument. And so I was looking in the used market because it's sort of like cars. It's like, it's way, makes a lot more sense to get used pianos than new pianos. And I found one on Craigslist that was in Arizona that was an incredible instrument, a Beckstein, uh, almost eight foot piano, beautiful East Berlin made piano at a steel. And uh, he ended up getting it. And because the studio wasn't done, it was delivered to a house that he has up there. So we just, we needed somewhere to park it. And we parked it in the house and the studio took a while. By the time the studio is finished, I'm sort of thinking, let's move the piano. He's like, I really like how it looks up here. It's in a big open room with high ceilings and like lots a, of windows. With a, and a, yeah, and it's on a beautiful ranch. So when you're looking out the windows, you're sort of looking at these beautiful pastures and Boulder Mountain. And yeah. It's a, it, is, it does look it's good. gorgeous. But it's not the best place um, acoustically. or to, You can't really record it much because someone lives in that house. And so it's just, it, I try to use it when I can, but I felt like it was a disservice in some ways to this this stunning like craftsmanship of this instrument. So it's been on my mind and your retreat came up and I thought, well, what really excites me creatively, what feels like an edge for me would be to use that piano to record live a, a concert that is a little more in the ceremony, well, a lot more in the ceremonial vein, meaning it's improvised, it's not a set, it's not songs I've played before. And I don't know what that will sound like I don't know where that will go but that sounds exciting and so that's what we did and it was very very nerve-wracking for me to prepare for that for many reasons very nerve-wracking yeah but you were at you were at like a I 10 was a mess. 10 
He I'll gets go, so say a seven or eight. Seven well, or eight. okay. Because it, it, I was so on my edge. Yes. That I felt like I could fall on my face big time in front. It was just like 15 of your people and then maybe a bunch of my friends from town. Yeah. Which you care the most because they're your friends, right? Uh, it was not a public event. And as soon as I started playing, I was realized how I asked the audience, I just spoke to like, I'm really nervous about this. And what I think I need, what I need from you is your attention. The gift of your attention and your presence will feed me and I will feed you. And that is our Euroboros. That is our snake feeding its tail, so to speak. And boy, did you guys do it. And as soon as I hit the first chord on the piano, I felt it. And I was like, this feels like supercharged compared to when I was rehearsing because now it's alive. Mm. And leaning into it, allowing it to move into quote unquote mistakes, as you said at the beginning of this podcast, is like, this is what I wanted to say about that. Mistakes, I'm just using that word, is not pejorative. It's it's allowing us to show our humanness in a performance, to show like, oh, now it's going left, and through it going left, I can discover it going right. Let's call that moments of real flow state. And then it's gonna go left again and it's gonna right again. And that that cycle, that engine of creativity that you're witnessing on stage, not only do I think it does it allow for us to find those moments of true flow and creation it's the only way but it's also amazing to watch i would imagine I, when i've seen concerts like that and it's rare to see concerts like a keith jarrett concert i would imagine back when he was playing that's what he did i'm not keith jarrett but i, I think i've always been putting myself down because keith jarrett's such a a monster of talent and virtuosity i'm like well despite the lack of virtuosity what he's channeling is a vulnerability to say, like, I don't know what I'm going to play. He would do this. He would play in an improvisational manner, solo at a piano in front of many thousands of people. That's balls out. And I do that in ceremonies where people are on medicine. But this, maybe some people are on medicine in this, but essentially they weren't. And they're kind of just sitting there, like, this energy of, like, okay, hold my attention, like, entertain. And I'm like, so by me saying up front, Please gift me your presence and then I will be able to let go of like it being uninteresting for maybe in my mind for you for moments or it's going to lose itself for a second so it can find itself. Yeah, you were very nervous about it coming off as quote unquote boring. Being judged. Yeah. Yeah, um, And I kept trying to assure you that was not going to be the case. Well, I didn't didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if if I'd sit down and be like, I don't know what to play. Well, I I applaud the, you for taking that risk, particularly when all of your central nervous system was trying to tell you to abort mission, and you went ahead and stood in the fire of that fear anyways, and then on the through line, you were really satisfied. It was incredibly nourishing, and it, it taught me something about, there's something in there, something emerging about how performances can lean more in that direction where I trust the audience to give me the support that will feed a vulnerability that is so risky but so beautiful that I'm excited. I was really excited from that and where that can really go. I, that's been in my performances, but I'm like, this was going further. Mm-hmm. It felt like a growth and an evolution. And so thank you for allowing me to do that. And I, st- I feel nervous talking about it even because I'm like, I don't even, I still feel feeble. I'm like, I don't know if I could do that again with people, <laughs> but it's like, I know though I can. I know that you it, can. It just, and I'm, it's going to have to emerge over and you've time. you wanted Grand Piano meets the Nord for Yeah, a I had long my live time. rig and then I had the piano. So it's actually using both. Yeah. 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 It was exquisite. It was. And what an instrument. I mean, that was. That's the other yes, side of this, though, is like Stein. the beauty of that instrument. It would not work on a crappy sounding piano. It really needs to be a true, because it's about the sound that is emanating from that actual instrument. That is also what's the third party that's feeding the process. Yeah, the cool thing, like you explained to the group that you're performing for, was that the piano wasn't amplified at all. Correct. In the room, is you're, you're hearing just its pure emanation coming mm-hmm. out, which is how it's designed, you know. 
with the tilt. And the reason they get bigger and bigger is to fill larger and larger spaces like concert halls. And that's, I don't believe they amplify in a typical classical large scale piano concert. You're just hearing the piano in the hall. Yeah. Which is cool. Yeah. Fucking cool. Yeah. 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 Well, we can leave it there for now, but um, thank you so much for being guest host <laughs> thank you and for check sharing. out your podcast which is called love service wisdom love service wisdom and all things that you do at marissarada.com yes m-a-r-i-s-a-r-a-d-h-a r-a-d-h-a yeah rada's the real boss around here and um, <laughs> we're co-pilots but i appreciate you taking some time for us just to dig into this it's, it's interesting for me too because um it helps me remember, but also uncover like connecting dots, looking backwards and like what all this is and what is what has become possible too. What has birthed. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And is birthing. Mm-hmm. Well, all the best fortune for this release. I love it. And the tanks and the sweatshirts are really cool too. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. 